actually had a deal with my parents that uh, I will try anything they say for a week. And if I don't like it, I can let it go. But I have to give my sort of best effort at least for a week to see if there is potential. So I can't so ignore it completely. Well, I love uh, that they took an iterative approach to your learning. They said, let him try it out for a week. If he likes it, he'll keep moving forward. If he doesn't like it, let's try a new experiment. I mean, that's genius. I think that's a learning lesson for all parents. How can you find what motivates your child and use that to their advantage, leverage it to help them assimilate new knowledge? Welcome, this is Phil Michaels, Forbes 30 Under 30 Entrepreneur and Performance Coach. Forbes names the top 30 entrepreneurs, leaders, and stars in the world. And each week, we bring you one of them to help you level up in your life and business. From celebrities like LeBron James to Kylie Jenner and Cardi B, you're sure to learn from the list. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now it's time to level up. Level up. Welcome to the Phil with Forbes 30 podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. He made the Forbes list in Slovakia in 2018 for the science and education category. He's a research scientist and postdoctoral fellow at the biopharmaceutical company Abvi in Chicago. He started his career in chemistry in his home country of Slovakia, co-authoring his first patent at the age of only 15. He has a planet named after him and scored the highest score to date in the organic chemistry exams at the University of Oxford. He earned his PhD from the KC Nicolau Lab of Rice University in Texas, where he co-authored a patent that was recently licensed by a pharma company. Please welcome my very special guest, Dr. Buckman. Thank you very much for having me, Phil. I'm, I'm very honored to be here. Very excited to have you here and share your story with the guests. Um, it's my pleasure. I'm honored as well. And before we dive into things, Dr. Buckman, where were you when you first found out you made the list? I would say it was in the lab because in 2018, I was still doing a PhD with KC at Rice University. Um, I, don't th I actually think I missed the very first email just because I have all the, sort of all the things going on at the time. But basically, I, I was very, very pleased to find out after sort of diving into all, all the messages in my inbox. And I was very, very proud to make the list. Such a proud moment. And who was the first person you shared it with? Definitely my parents. <laughs> they were overjoyed about the, about the news. They must have been very proud. A very exciting moment for you. But take us back to the very beginning, Dr. Buckman. Where were you, uh, where you grew up, the path that led you to where you are now and, and making it to the Forbes list ultimately? So I, I was born in uh, 1993 in, in, a, in a small town of Slovakia called Levice. I didn't move my parents to the capital city uh, as I was growing up. I actually lived in Japan for about four years when I was, uh, when I was a kid because, because my dad actually works for a Japanese company. Um, and then as I, was, uh, as I was going to go to elementary school, uh, we actually moved back to Slovakia at, at the age of six. And I went uh, basically through the entire education system up, up until the end of high school in Slovakia. Uh, and in the last year of my high school, I actually applied to University of Oxford uh, for my chemistry degree, for my undergraduate studies. And I was very fortunate to, to be able to uh, get an offer from the first place at, at Modeling College, which at the time was basically ranked highest in, a, in an ranked table, which sort of puts uh, sort of in perspective all the colleges at Oxford at the time. Uh, and I was also, uh, I, I was also very fortunate to also, uh, to also be the recipient of the Palgrave Brown Scholarship, which, is, which actually allowed me to actually attend Oxford uh, almost free of charge, which was absolutely wonderful. Um, and uh, after that, uh, I, I moved to Houston, Texas, where I did my PhD with, with, with Professor Nicolau in the field of organic synthesis, basically in terms of 
making uh, some biologically active natural products. Uh, and after that, I joined uh, AbV uh, as my postdoctoral appointment, which I'm, and I've been here for about uh, a year now. Where I'm, and I'm currently working on development of some new methodologies for drug discovery synthesis. Unbelievable. I mean, you're 15 years old and you're already writing a patent and you go on to Oxford, but how did you even come about writing, uh, co-authoring a patent at the age of 15? I mean, how does something like that even happen? That's amazing. So I think quite a large so proportion uh, of that has to be attributed to luck. I actually met with one uh, research scientist from the, from the Academy of Sciences in Slovakia at a sort of outreach event that they, they actually hosted in a, in a shopping mall. And I sort of asked him if I can sort of come observe some of the chemistry that they do, because I was super excited about chemistry at the time. It was just sort of, I think it was the first or second year I was just getting into it. Uh, and he agreed. So I basically went on and sort of worked with him on a research project over the next year or two. Uh, and, we're, and we were actually sort of able to sort of transform that uh, up, until very, uh, up until a very successful outcome. Unbelievable. I mean, the fact that someone believed in, in you too at that early of an age, he must have saw something. I'm surprised in you. too, to be absolutely honest. <laughs> have you ever asked him, like, what did you see in me that he might not have seen in other candidates or students? I think the quite common denominator of very successful people that I was able to sort of interact with over the last couple of years, I think enthusiasm and some motivation and being sort of self-interested in something goes a really, really long way. Uh, I actually had a, had a chance to be a TA for a few courses at Rice, uh, basically both in the lab and in the lecture. And you can clearly see that it, you know it's a joy to teach students who take genuine interest and passion in a subject in a subject that you're teaching them. Yeah, there's not many people that get juiced up about organic chemistry. So when you, I guess, when you find one, you're like, okay, I got one finally. <laughs> I remember in pre-med, OCHEM was like a nightmare and you're like, oh gosh, I have to go into this class again. But you actually enjoyed it. You loved it. You found a passion. And I mean, such an early age to identify a passion like that is pretty rare. Absolutely. I mean, um, I, definitely, I, I would definitely say I didn't sort of take the sort of most conventional way of getting a, a, an education in terms of going to, uh, I, I guess, a specialty that's probably most commonly hated between people. Um, however, it's, it's very, very dear to my heart. I had a really good experience so far. And I, I, I really do love it. The thing is, um, if I didn't, I definitely wouldn't be where I am right now. And I wouldn't go through all the sort of pain and hard work that actually got me to where I am in my life uh, if I didn't so truly love my subject. At such an early age, was there some inspiration that, I mean, since three years old, were you like diving into organic chemistry? I mean, how did this come about for this passion? So no one in my family uh, has been in the sciences or the chemistry, as far as I can tell. Some of these are only sort of black sheep uh, in this regard. <laughs> Uh, I had no idea about chemistry, I would say, until probably the age of 13, 14, when I first started to have it in, in school. And actually, my mom was the one sort of, sort of nudging me towards trying the chemistry Olympiad, which was something that I think she did when she was uh, sort of my age at the time. Um, and uh, it was something that I didn't sort of really, you know, care for at the very beginning. But I sort of, sort of figured out, you know, I'll give it a shot. We actually had a deal with my parents that uh, I will try anything they say for a week. If I don't like it, I can let it go. But I have to give my sort of best effort at least for a week to see if there is potential. So I can't sort of ignore it completely. So I was like, you know, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And uh, at the very sort of lowest level of the chemistry Olympia, which is basically just sort of chemistry in school, it's mostly based on mathematics and some calculations. And I was always, I think since I was, you know, three or four or five um, years old, uh, I was quite inclined for math because my parents actually mm -hmm. took a lot of time to practice, you know, and so sort of play school with me. It was a sort of game play. And I mean, so, so I, th I think 
now looking back, it sounds a bit dumb, but I think it was a very, very clever decision on, on, on their part to basically make education a game. We've got to be interested mm-hmm. in learning uh, at quite a young age. So I actually went to this Olympiad, and the, at the very lowest level, it was the, mostly all maths. And I, did, and I did pretty well. I actually won some regional round in, in, in Bratislava, sort of without, I would say, too much preparation, which was really exciting. Um, and so project actually came with it that I didn't expect was that all the sort of successful solvers of the chemistry Olympiad actually, get, actually, get, actually got to, uh, get to go to a camp in the summer. Uh, which basically is a two-week camp at the university where you can learn both some, uh, basically you have about morning, about three or four hours of lectures. And you also have a few hours in, in the afternoon of sort of lab practicals where you get to do some really exciting experiments. And that, I think, was a sort of pivotal moment. Uh, I, and that, I think, was a pivotal moment for me when I sort of figured out, okay, this is something I truly fell in love with. And my motivation going forward wasn't necessarily, you know, I want to learn more about chemistry, but I want to go to this camp again because it was so cool. Um, so basically, It made it fun. Year, it was yes, edu- edutainment rather than education. And your parents were smart enough to know to gamify this. Let's make it fun for him. And he's going to look forward to educating himself in this realm. I think that's a learning lesson for all parents. How can you find what motivates your child and use that to their advantage, leverage it to help them assimilate new knowledge? Mm-hmm. It was definitely something that, you know, now looking back was a really, really smart move on my parents' part. And I'm really, really grateful actually to this sort of foster interest and basically almost anything I came up with. I had to sort of at this liberty to at least try and sort of see if it's something that will interest me sort of further. And there were and and definitely things that I've tried for a while, like painting, and I was absolutely miserable at. Uh, so that didn't go very far. Well, I love uh, that. They took an iterative approach to your learning. They said, let him try it out for a week. If he likes it, he'll keep moving forward. If he doesn't like it, let's try a new experiment. I mean, that's genius. Children are already curious by nature. We already want to explore. We want to find new stimuli as soon as we're born. So if you can just facilitate and foster, like you said, that curiosity, that childlike curiosity, then the child's going to love learning. But sometimes we try to force them into a box of doing things that they don't like to do. And ultimately it leads to them associating learning with something bad mm-hmm. and maybe would, not even looking forward to going to school. So I actually must say that, you know, so actually I started off as sort of most regular elementary school in my district when I was six. And I think I quickly realized that um, I was able to sort of process information at a little bit more of a higher rate. And I started making noise and sort of being, I guess, uh, not the best student in the class because I was getting bored. And I think sort of, the sort of, I guess, standard uh, approach to that is, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get in trouble because, you know, you're talking to your classmates, you're disturbing other people, you get in trouble. And I think the sort of key thing here was that, I think what, well, also, also my parents realized as well, actually put me into a school for gifted children, which had a very interesting approach. Basically, as long as you finish an assignment, they'll give you another one. So at no point you should just sit around and do nothing. There was more of a sort of, sort of personalized approach to, you know, we can move basically at your own pace. And if you're finished with the curriculum, there's plenty more to go around and we'll give you more work to do. They tailor the learning to your speed at which you learn and process information. Yes. And and the other thing also was that basically you're surrounded by other students, other kids, which are also at roughly your level of Mm. comprehension and of speed of going through material, which actually facilitates two things. One, you can cover more things in the same, so one hour lecture. And also mm. we can cover those things in a much higher speed. So at no point you sort of feel like you're just sort of waiting around doing nothing. You always have yeah. new, new challenges in front of you. And that sort of keeps you motivated, I think, quite a lot. And I must and a say- lot of, A lot of teachers, when they find a student like that nowadays, it seems like, at least in the US schools, is they label them, oh, he has ADD, or oh, she has ADHD. 
and they put this label on them and then they try to medicate them rather than let's see if they just learn at a different speed. Maybe they need something to occupy them because they're bored and they're a child and they're exploring and they're curious and they're energetic. And we ask them to sit down at a desk and just not move, don't talk, be silent, which is the antithesis of what a child's brain is doing at that stage when it's creating so many new neurons and firing so many synapses. I love that you actually bring some one example that I think stood out to me the most. I thought it influenced my sort of learning of career, uh, basically from my high school the most, with this really great math teacher called Anino, um, who I, I, I am deeply in debt for basically being as smart of a scientist as I am right now. He taught me most sort of important things and sort of important concepts in math. And the way he approaches his lectures and sort of, uh, and, and sort of classroom management, I think is very, very unique. And actually, so, so, uh, so actually the rules of work, and you know, in, in, in most schools, you can't go to a toilet during the classroom time, you can't eat, you can't drink, you can't talk to people. And basically, the approach that he took is that as long as your last grade in the subject he was teaching was the one, was the sort of most excellent mark, you're allowed to talk to people, obviously quietly, not many students, you can drink, you can eat, and you can go to the bathroom if you choose to do so. And basically, as long as your performance is good, he will sort of make some concessions, and you can have I guess, a sort of more I guess, pleasurable experience in the classroom. More autonomy. He, he reward yes. he rewards you if you have good performance. You get more autonomy, more freedom. Absolutely. And if it was a two at that point, I I I, I would have to I guess ask him now which sort of privilege you lose. But basically, you lose I think talking to people at so at that point. Mm. Uh, and if you have a three, you can only drink but not eat. If you go to four, you can you know. So he's, so so he's using operant conditioning yes. to condition you based on your behavior on what yes. you're what stimuli you're going to receive, whether it's a punishment or reinforcement if it's going to be negative or positive. And to me, that, that obviously, that would really well. I think he's a, sort of one of the, I would say, probably favorite uh, sort of teachers uh, at my high school. I want to say hi to him right now. Hey, if he's he's a, there you go. Shout out to, what's his name? Anino Belan. Shout out to you, professor. You did a great job. Keep going. And I mean, obviously, listen, you are, you're winning the Olympics for chemistry. You are on this skyrocket path, you're writing patents at age 15, and then you get into Oxford and you score the highest score uh, to date on organic, organic chemistry exams. I mean, how did that happen? Did you just keep following this trajectory of study, 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 go to camps in the summer? What led you to, to receiving that high score? So actually, I, I, as I must say, so basically over the course of my last few years of high school, I actually attended some university lectures in Slovakia at the Communist University as well. I was interacting with my professors there, did all the chemistry Olympiads and the preparation camps, and basically sort of trained to be as good of a chemist as I possibly could be already sort of before even going to Oxford. So I must say that in my mind, I sort of figured, you know, I'll go to a university and I should already know most of the material because they actually the chemistry Olympiad, especially at the highest level, is probably on par with most college material um, that, that I've seen so far. And uh, I must say it was a, quite a big slap in the face when I joined Oxford and realized how difficult their exams were. When at the beginning of the first year, when I look at the year and exams from, from the past years, uh, I would barely pass. I was, you know, at the sort of pass-fail mark in the 40% sort of range, but I was nowhere near sort of actually being able to solve all the questions and ask all, basically all the problems. Because I think the way I've learned a lot of things in high school and also basically for the chemistry Olympia itself. I wasn't, I, 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 I didn't realize this at the time, but I wasn't necessarily understanding deeply the concepts of why things work 
I just knew the formulas and could do the computations on them very quickly. So I, I was sort of learned and trained how to solve a very specific sort of set of problems that, that sort of appear on the Olympiads and sort of uh, to do well on those tests and do the practicals really well. But I, I think, I don't think I had as much of a solid background as I thought in terms of the deep understanding of where things come from. How can you derive the formulas? You know, so, and so what's the sort of background behind all of this? So, think, so actually when I joined Oxford and we started uh, at the very beginning of, uh, of, of the tutorial and the lectures, uh, the sort of first few homeworks actually I turned into my tutor were covered in red pen all over the place. I, think, I truly think there was more red pen than blue and I was crushed because I was so very much used to you know, being one of the best, if not the best in what I do. And then someone proved me, you don't understand almost anything. <laughs> and you have major gaps in how you sort of understand, how you sort of view the subject. And that was a very difficult experience. Uh, it was something that, you know, I honestly contemplated, you know, I'm going home, screw this. I'm clearly not qualified to be here. This is not going to work. Uh, I could have done that. And I, could have, I, I, I definitely did sort of think about that being one of the options. However, the other option was, okay, look, I have someone who is clearly trying to help me out by basically marking all these things wrong. He's trying to basically point out all the things I still need to work on and improve upon. And if I just do that and sort of try my best and, you know, and keep going at this, it will be difficult. It's going to be, you know, lots of tears. But hopefully he's done this enough many times that by the end of this sort of first year or, or the, at the end of the degree, I should be in a very good position. And uh, uh, since we are talking together now, I clearly chose the latter of the two, uh, of the two choices. Uh, and I worked really, really hard. Um, you know, 100-hour weeks was, I guess, nothing too surprising. Uh, you, you know, to wake up at 8 in the morning, go to lectures for three hours, do some lab work, and then study until midnight, and do the same thing over and over again, with a few sort of, I guess, breaks uh, for some ballroom dancing, which is to my hobby since my teenage years, and I love that more than anything else. Um, so, you know, it, it was definitely a sort of very focused time, and so making sure that, you know, it's not only, you know, I recognize the pattern of how to solve this question, but do I genuinely understand how things work out in this world? Because that's what science is about, right? Is the understanding of the world around us. Uh, and I was able, uh, I do have to say, so, so organic was my favorite. So I think that's why I spend the most time on it, even though sort of objectively, it wasn't the best choice because I would have done, would have done even higher scores if I focused on the things I was weaker at, like, like, like for example, physical chemistry or other, uh, or, or, or other subjects. Uh, however, because organic was my passion uh, from the beginning, basically, um, I, I, did, I did sort of, I guess, focus quite a lot of time and effort onto that. Um, and I think I, I already came with a decent background in it for, so from the start. And I sort of expanded up on that uh, over the course of the first year. And I was able to score 99 uh, on, on the first exam, which was 99% uh, of the 100. Unbelievable. Uh, and uh, I actually sort of went back and checked. Uh, and the highest uh, up until then was 98. Uh, so I was very, very proud that, you know, I got the 99. However, I must say, the first reaction uh, that I had from my parents uh, when I told them, you know, I got 99, it was the highest so great ever. They were like, could you not figure out the last 1% what happened? <laughs> uh, and I was like, <laughs> you know, I've tried, trust me. And uh, I actually must say that I, I was pretty confident when I was uh, turning in uh, the exam, like I, I got 100 because I answered every single question. I actually answered more questions that I was, that I was asked to because you can actually choose which questions you answer on your, on your finals. Uh, so I actually answered one entire full question extra and every part of every single question uh, of those one, of, of the ones I chose to answer. Uh, so I, I thought, you know, I had, I had a pretty good sort of like a safeguard, but I must have missed, you know, a, a small deal here and there because actually it's, it's actually, quite, I, I think quite interesting that in terms of at Oxford, if you just write the correct answer to the question in a lot of times, you will get, you know, the 70% mark, something of that sort. But unless you basically give 
every detail, every aspect you can possibly write down to support mm. your claims. That's what the last 30% of those marks is. So actually, it's not too difficult if you understand so deeply the subject, which obviously is sort of hard to sort of itself, to get about a 70% grade. Uh, I think that's, I think the sort of, sort of cutoff for a first class degree is at the 70% mark. And I think about a 30% of the cohort actually achieves that every year. So that's actually very, very commendable. Uh, mm. But the end sort of starts putting hairs between the 70 and the 80 and the 80 and the 90, like it gets exponentially more difficult to yes. score those last little points here and there. Uh, so um, I, 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 I should have to say that there was a small part in me that wanted to contest those 99 as a <laughs> to see the script and see where I sort of made a mistake. I was very actively discouraged from doing so because you yeah, I'm sure you'll never forget that. <laughs> and, uh, you'll never forget that moment. It's like, oh, I got that one aspect wrong, good. but I actually can contest it as well. So yes. <laughs> then, but then you choose. So you go to Oxford. You're doing well, and then how did you ultimately decide the KC Nicolau Lab at Rice University out of all the options you probably had afforded to you? Absolutely. So uh, over the course of basically the three or four years actually led up to the decision. I actually interned with a few different labs around the world. I actually did some research in, in Hong Kong with Professor Wong. I actually did an internship uh, at Oxford, one of the professors there, Professor Dixon as well. Um, and uh, I was sort of, I was looking into, he actually got a scholarship uh, from Slovakia, that basically supported me uh, for half the summer to do some research work uh, at a place of my choice. Um, and I basically sort of chose uh, to work with Casey Nicola because I've seen his great works in the field of organic chemistry. He's one of the sort of, uh, you know, grandfathers of discipline or one of the most famous chemists in, in my area that I'm interested in. Um, actually, so emailed him out of the blue. We never met before. Uh, you know, I'm a random guy from Oxford. Can I come work with you? Uh, to which he replied that, you know, he will need to see some recommendation letters and sort of see what he can do. But it was uh, overall quite a positive experience. I think sort of that he actually reached out back because a lot of people would just ignore the email completely because you're strange on the internet, right? Uh, so I actually subscribed, I guess, real quickly to put some recommendation letters all together to make sure that, you know, I can show that I'm not making this up. Uh, I think it took a few weeks after that, which was basically pure silence. There was in anticipation of if, if, if something's gonna come out of this. But eventually uh, I, I did receive an offer letter that says, you know, you're welcome to come to Rice University. Actually, he was just moving from Scripps to Houston uh, over that summer. Uh, so basically intro with him just, just as he was starting his lab uh, in Houston. Uh, and then I also did a, a second internship with him the year after that, just to make sure that I want to sign up for years of my life to this person, basically <laughs> uh, my grad school career. But actually both internships, both internships were really, really well. And I was very fortunate that at the end of the first one, he actually gave me an uh, acceptance letter to a PhD program. So that if, if I wanted to join his lab after I finished my master's at Oxford, uh, there were his conditions to actually get the master's degree from Oxford. I couldn't just like drop everything and leave. Uh, but I'm very glad I did. Uh, that actually, I, I, can, I can join his lab in August of 2015 for a PhD. Congratulations. That must have been such a rewarding moment. Someone that you look up to, a role model, and then they give you this offer letter of acceptance. That must have been a very rewarding moment. And then what ultimately led you from there to AbbVie in Chicago? I think the first one was when I was, I think, 16 or 17. I was doing the Intel ISAF, the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair in, in San Jose, California, where I actually was able to win the second grand award in chemistry that led to the honor of having a planet named after me. You, you had the planet named after you as a result of winning the prize second place at the Intel Science and Engineering Competition in San Jose, California. Yes, that's correct. Wow. So basically, the second place comes with a cash award uh, as, well as, as well as with the honor of having actually a minor planet Talk about it. You. Talk uh, about an honor and a compliments. 
You know what? Skip these little uh, trivial prizes. We're just going to name an entire planet after you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, 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 I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's definitely not the, I guess, the most uh, uh, hands-on, useful kind of thing to have. Obviously, <laughs> some money was so well spent in sort of uh, the flights and doing sure. internships and being able to sort of further my career uh, as a scientist. However, uh, it's a really cool stuff. I guess talking point, bragging point, catch on attention. It's yeah, I mean, especially if you're sending a cold email to someone you say, listen, I'm the guy who has a planet named after him. I just wanted to grab a moment of your time. It's probably <laughs> a unique email coming in your inbox. Yes. And the other thing, so there was also, I would say, sort of quite top of the list of some really good sort of scientific moments as well was, I actually remember this very vividly. I was at one of the preparation camps uh, for the chemistry Olympiad in my last year of high school. Uh, and I was basically, I think we were in the middle of the practical at the time. Uh, and, 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 and that was the moment when I actually received the email that I actually won the Palgrave Brown Scholarship at Oxford, which was worth basically four years time, 10,000 pounds, which at the time would cover uh, all, of my, all, all of my expenses. And you not only went to Oxford for free because of the scholarship, you basically got paid because you get the stipend on top of it to go. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much, yes. <laughs> so those are the three top moments, uh, the scholarship to Oxford, the acceptance letter from your role model, uh, Dr. Nicolau, and getting a planet named after you after winning the Intel Science and Engineering Prize. Amazing. So you have all these accomplishments and then you decide to go work at AbbVie in Chicago. How did that come about? So I actually must say that um, I wasn't necessarily considering uh, my career uh, in industry up until the last year of my, of my PhD. Uh, so I always had a sort of vision of becoming a professor and so going down the academic route. However, uh, after AbbVie licensed the patent, I co-authored with Casey, uh, from us, it was something that sort of put them on my on, on my radar. And so I realized, you know, if I ever want to give it a shot and sort of see what industry is about, uh, I think I have a quite a unique opportunity to, to actually do a postdoc for a year or two and sort of see how I like this environment. If it's something I can sort of see myself sort of staying in or not, do have a chance of going back up to academia if I choose to do so at the end. Um, and uh, I, I must say that sort of having some sort of uh, accomplishments already from my PhD that sort of also, also pertain to Abby as a company, I think was sort of nice. To, basically foot in the door and actually getting considered uh, for that position. I interviewed here in, uh, in January of last year. I think that went really well. Uh, I had some phenomenal colleagues here. I'm really, really happy here. Uh, so uh, it, it was a no-brainer for me to join Abbey at that point. So what's a typical day consist of? I mean, what is your main goal that you're trying to achieve? As of right now, as of the last two or three months, I've been working from home, which basically means I've been outsourcing all my chemistry uh, to, to our collaborators because we, ca we can't go... Uh, Quite back uh, to the lab because of the of, of the shutdown uh, at this point. However, on a sort of normal day, I'm currently involved with basically figuring out uh, new ways and sort of new routes how to make some interesting molecules. This is mostly on the sort of methodology development side. I can't talk about any of the specific details because of obviously uh, of, of the confidentiality uh, some nature uh, of my work. However, it, it's basically uh, a support role to, to the whole. Uh, drug discovery process. The drug discovery process. So you're helping develop drugs that might end up in phase three trials, helping humans uh, provide treatment properly to some of the conditions that they might have. I think the ultimate goal for any sort of medical science, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, med chemist or I guess scientist in this area is to put a drug on the market, right? That's obviously the dream, mm -hmm. sort of the holy grail of why we all do this. So I think if we can get to that point, uh, you know, at some point in the future, that will be absolutely wonderful. Uh, obviously, I'm still in the early stages of my career at, at, at this very moment. So I'm not quite, you know, at that point, where I actually make any of those big level decisions. And so which direction of the project is going to go to, which compound to make and so on. 
but uh, it's definitely something that uh, I'm really hoping I'll be able to achieve uh, at some point in the future. Would you like to have your own lab one day or go back into academia ultimately? I, I think having your own lab comes with a lot of good things and bad things. Uh, I, I, I think as of right now, I can foresee myself staying in the industry sphere at least for the foreseeable future. I think it would really be a sort of nice goal to sort of work towards uh, basically have at some point in the future to be able to have your own lab and sort of manage, uh, you know, even students at university and sort of uh, give back to the community basically by imparting some knowledge and the skills that you basically acquire over the, over the course of your career as a give back and we'll train uh, basically the next generation um, of scientists. And what, you know, looking back over your journey now, what would you say, Dr. Buckman, is the single most important attribute that got you to where you are today that ultimately made you successful? I think pinpointing just one single thing might be a little bit hard. So I'm going to give you a cop-out answer with a few of them. Uh, if you are not enthusiastic and super interested in what you choose to pursue, you will have a very good time. Uh, you'll have a really bad time because... There is nothing that will force almost anyone to work 100 hours a week for, for multiple years without them actually genuinely enjoying what they do. I think, so having a so genuine passion for a subject and for the area of your expertise, I think is incredibly important because that's the one thing that even when you know, science is not going well and days are hard and you have some you know, negative results after negative results and nothing seems to be going well, there's sort of one thing that can sort of keep you going. And I think that sort of also translates into the next one, which is sort of, uh, perseverance and resourcefulness in terms of being able to, I guess, find the good things even in a bad day, even when everything's going wrong. So basically figure out, you know, I know why I'm doing this. I, I'm, I'm on a mission here. I know why I got to, to where I am right now. I know where I need to go in the future. So, so you know, if I just keep doing what I'm doing and I have sort of the right vision in plan, um, there's sort of, I think, the sort of best way um, to achieve success. Uh, yeah, like uh, if you're not passionate about it and you're not interested in it and you don't have this underlying drive, desire, motivation, this fire in your belly for it, it's probably an indication that you should probably choose something else. And Absolutely. similar to you, maybe we should uh, do a weekly experiment, just test as many things out because the more you do things you don't like and the more you identify things you don't like, the closer you're going to get to finding things you do like. And then once you find it, having that rose-colored glass of does the rose have thorns or do the thorns have roses? You know. Absolutely. I think it's very important to sort of triage quite quickly and quite early in your life, a few different things that you might be interested in and sort of keep an open mind. And I think so naturally you'll sort of, I guess, find the things that you enjoy the most. I mean, I would have never guessed I would enjoy ballroom dancing when I first tried it. I was obviously terrible at the very beginning. I was a kid and I could not move. Um, but it was something that, you know, with just a so few... Uh, which is a few practices I, I really fell in love with. And it's something that uh, I, I hold uh, really close to my heart as one of my favorite hobbies. Um, and uh, it, and something I will sort of always look into. Uh, I actually must say that uh, the first uh, association or sort of club I joined uh, when I came to Oxford was the Oxford University Dance Sport Club. It was the sort of first thing I sort of seeked out immediately because actually towards the end of my high school years, I was getting really, really busy with all the chemistry and sort of schoolwork and research and everything else. So, so I had to sort of put my dancing uh, on hold a little bit mm. because I think my parents did a very um, good argument that, you know, um, if you <laughs> I guess, want to dance, you also have to make sure you have, uh, you know, a proper career. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a way to so, fund that dancing. So speaking, exactly. So because, you know, it's a really nice hobby, but, you know, I, don't, I, I think they quickly realized that, you know, I guess my talents are not, uh, you know, in sort of physical 
education sure. type of space, but mostly, you know, in, in a sort of, I guess, more of a thinking as of science. Uh, it world. seems so dichotomous uh, between organic chemistry and ballroom dancing. And I love how you, you have it. Yeah, they're polar opposites, but you, yet you find a way to make both of them work. And that's really cool that you're tapping into both sides of your brain rather than just remaining in one because you're in a lab setting, you don't really move around that much, but in ballroom dancing, you're moving around a lot. So I actually do have to say, I mean, I think partially why I was able to get through Oxford, you know, with decent mental health and everything was to have sort of a creative outlet and sort of mm. do something that, you know, if, if you're dancing for an hour, you forget about all the tutorials, lectures, the labs, the reports, everything else sort of goes away for an hour. You can sort of clear your mind and focus on something that's completely sort of orthogonal to anything else you've done that day. And it's really, really nice as a sort of reset. And so it sort of keeps your mind off of the problems so as a temporary uh, sort of blockade. And then, you know, after you're done, you can basically go back and sort of start fresh. And it really mm. sort of helps you sort of, I guess, clear your mind. And be it's very, like a very form focused. of meditation. Exactly. And it, it sort of focuses your energy that, you know, because you know, you know, I have to finish these things by that deadline. So, you know, I, I know this is what I have to do to be able to do other things I also enjoy. So if I don't finish yes. this homework by that hour, I'm going to miss my practice and that's not good. So let's make sure I can get this done. Um, that was really sort of one of the things that sort of, I guess keeps you motivated in a lot of ways. Um, I think that's why one of the most important things to do as a kid is, is in, get involved in extracurricular activities. It helps you Absolutely. learn time management and where you're spending your energy, your focus. Um, speaking of your, your journey, what's the biggest lesson you think you've learned along the way that you wish you maybe have learned sooner? I think in terms of the sort of, I guess, schoolwork type things that being different than other people is normal and you can always find people who think like you if you just mm. look hard enough and long enough. It's something that uh, I'll have to really sort of comment my high school as my sort of external gift to children school sort of system for because it's sort of pulled people who are, who are very interested, uh, you know, in being academically as best as they can into one place where they could thrive all together. Which I think really, really advanced my growth in, on the, in the academic sphere. I think that it really sort of helped jumpstart my career uh, with a sort of huge leap so forward. Uh, and from there, just, you know, uh, taking the time to figure out what do you want to do and where do you want to go and what kind of life you would like to have, let's say five, 10 or 15 years from now, which obviously when you're 10 or 15 years old, you don't really know the answers to any of these questions. And I must say, I had no idea what I'm going to do when I was 10. And, and even if I had, I, I couldn't even tell you where it was now. That's how probably far away I am from that. Because I didn't even know so chemistry or board, or board dancing pretty much existed at that point. So it's okay to sort of change your mind on things. And it's, it's okay to learn and sort of, you know, add some data into your analysis, and then to pivot uh, in terms of which direction you want to go to. But I think the sort of overall theme, if you can keep that fairly consistent, is of focusing on being excellent in your field. That's something that's definitely going to go a really long way. It, in your professional life. Thanks for sharing, Dr. Buckman. We're going to transition now into something called the under 30 seconds round. I'm going to fire off some questions. I want you to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? I think so. Let's do it. What is the book you've gifted more often than any other book and why? I must say I was never in the sort of gifting books kind of sphere, but the one thing that I think made the most impact on me was a book by Dr. Curdy and his wife, Barbara Chaco, which is the organic chemistry textbook basically has all the name, all name reactions inside and I have to sort of great advantage uh, 
in my academic life, uh, and, and I've learned and I've learned a lot of chemistry from that book when I was. A kid. We'll have to we'll have to put that in the show notes. How do you can you uh, describe it again, or what the title is, and who is by slower? His name reaction in organic chemistry textbook, but after Curdy and his wife, uh, Dr. Chaco, I, I can I can see the link for that as well. Perfect, thank you. And what's one of the best investments you've made, and one of the worst investments you've made, and why? I think the best investment, uh, I think on this case, I'll approach Google as a time investment, as an effort investment. And that was really take everything that Oxford gives you and sort of use your time while you're there to the fullest potential, you know, read every book you can, you know, be in library as long as you can and make sure you absorb all the knowledge that basically you're already paying for by being there. So you want to make sure to sort of do your best at basically every activity that you do. So don't have asked things, but just, you know, because once you commit, you have to commit 110%. Uh, in terms of, of, of worst investments, um, I don't think I've sort of had anything that I, I regret, I guess, majorly in my professional career. Uh, but uh, in, uh, in sort of, I guess, the more sort of, I guess, technical details in terms of actually trying a certain, I guess, chemistry sort of problem to solve in one particular way, and it's not going as well as you would like. There's nothing wrong with abandoning an idea and trying something else. Mm -hmm. And so, sort of, I guess, figuring out a way, you know, you don't have to invest a lot of time and effort into one thing that's clearly not working and figuring out, you know, it's time to switch the strategy and figure out uh, a different way. Yeah. Give yourself a threshold or a deadline. Give yourself a threshold or a deadline where you say, okay, I'm going to choose at this moment. Am I going to pivot or persevere? Absolutely. What's the most impactful thing you do in your morning routine and the most impactful thing you do in your evening routine? So I must say that my morning and evening routines changed drastically since I'm doing some working at home. Uh, because there's no, no, there's, there's no commute to work and all that stuff. But in terms of the sort of one thing I always keep constant is obviously a, a quick shower and a, and a good breakfast every morning. It's a start to day up, so it wakes you up a little bit. So you can basically focus straight away onto doing most productive things uh, over the course of the day. And, and most recently, I actually picked up reading uh, about an hour before bed every time. I, I try to be as diligent as I can about it. I don't always make it. Uh, but sort of, I guess, I guess sort of, sort of shifting your focus from basically consuming media and sort of watching YouTube and videos to actually reading a book. What are you reading right now? I actually read quite a lot of books about investments and so investing because I, I, I feel like uh, I never get sort of a, a formal, uh, I never got a formal education in sort of personal finance. It's something that uh, I find really fascinating. So recently, it's a space that I've sort of been trying to, I guess, absorb as much knowledge as I can uh, in that area. So what's your path for the future? What's your go-to breakfast? My go-to breakfast, I like uh, some scrambled eggs. I actually have a, a recipe by Gordon Ramsay that I actually found on YouTube. I tried to recreate it to the best of my abilities. So, so also uh, shout out to him if he's watching this. <laughs> shout out to Gordon Ramsay. Your scrambled egg breakfast is the breakfast of champions. Absolutely. Uh, pretend you won the Peter Thiel Fellowship and you're going to get money to start a business instead of go to college or you're going to do something else other than go to college with this money. What's the very first thing you do to uh, use this money? I must say, if I won a scholarship of $100,000 at the age of 18 when I was about to join Oxford, I don't think I would have done anything majorly differently. I think uh, Oxford gave me a really, really good sort of foundation uh, into being a scientist. And I don't think I would be anywhere close to where I am right now if I didn't do those four years uh, of really, really hard work. Um, so I think at that time, I would just put, put it into, it, into a high yield savings account and sort of leave it there until I figure out uh, a sort of good use of the money. Uh, but uh, at that stage, I'll definitely still go to college because I think that was one of the best decisions I've ever made for myself. There you go. And last one, what's something you never knew you needed? I think especially so recently having good friends and having, pe mm. uh, having people to rely on, it's something that uh, I think very, very important. I don't think I've put as much 
emphasis on that early in my career when I was very, very focused academically and on sort of, I guess, more professional development in, in, in science area. But I think having uh, sort of people you can trust and rely on is, is really, really important. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Buckman. Uh, before you go, what's the next big goal, milestone, or bucket list item you want to achieve? I think that's a really good question. In, in terms of the sort of near term goals in sort of, I guess, quite near future, I would definitely like to sort of start, uh, I guess, making even more of an impact uh, onto the company, the more of a senior position. Uh, so that's, I think, sort of, I can I sort of have in my sights, uh, I would say, quite recently. I think the sort of long term goal, and this you know, maybe the five to 10 years would be to become a team leader or basically a group leader in, in, a, in, a, in a pharma company when you know you have some direct reports and you can basically advance the science even 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 faster and i think the long-term goal uh, uh i actually have two of them and it's a one or the other uh, i would love to either get a Nobel prize one day uh or put a drug on the market and i, I guess whichever comes sooner i'm happy with that <laughs> for sure perfect i love it and where do listeners go to connect with you directly uh, you can email me at marikdelbookman at gmail.com. I have an Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I think I have Twitter and I don't, I don't really use very much. Uh, and you can find me also on LinkedIn. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, marik.buckman at gmail.com. Please go connect with Dr. Buckman. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here today. This is Dr. Buckman with AbbVie, who uses organic chemistry for biopharmaceutical products. We learned so much today. We learned how to get a planet named after you, how to get the most out of your time in academia or even Oxford. We also learned the breakfast of champions. Dr. Buckman, thank you so much for being here today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Who do you think would benefit from hearing it? You can make an impact on their life by sharing it now. Before you go, I encourage you to tell us your favorite part of the episode in the review section. Now it's time to level up. Level up. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>